Join Rabbi Ari Shishler for some fresh thinking every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. 101.9 High FM, 101.9 megahertz of power. Very warm welcome to you. Good afternoon. It's Thursday afternoon. We're getting ready for Shabbos. We're getting ready for Purim. This time next week, we'll be deep into the Purim experience. So it is that time of the year where everybody's... Uh, Hopefully in a good mood, hopefully Basimcha. We spoke about this a little bit last week about being Basimcha, about being happy. And uh, I don't know, after budget speech, which of course is the main topic on everybody's minds today, I'm not sure if people are happy or not happy or what exactly the responses are. Don't worry, I'm not going to do a budget speech analysis. It's definitely not my forte and certainly not my job. But the one thing that it does bring to mind, you know, the few things that have happened in the last few days locally and abroad, needless to say, the big story in the United States at the moment, that horrible, horrible shooting in uh, in Parkland in Miami. And I don't know if you saw there was a magnificent clip on CNN where they interviewed a rabbi, happens to be somebody who I know personally. And I, I really think he did a fantastic job of handling that interview and using it as a platform to give a meaningful message, which I believe that they then took a group of rabbis, then took to, to the governor of Florida. And possibly it looks like they're going to put it into practice. And that's the idea of having a moment of silence in school. So, so that's a big news story, needless to say. I think it's definitely on everybody's minds. Locally, the big news story has got to be the budget and VAT, VAT increase. That's something that affects us all. So we could sit here and we could talk politics. I do see, though, a certain similarity between those two stories. And somehow those two stories also convey a really important message about how Jews are supposed to see the world. And maybe that will be part of our conversation here today. Needless to say, being a week away from Purim, this is what to talk about on that score as well. And maybe a little bit later, I'll run through just some of the practical things that you need to know. So we don't forget, you know, it is from year to year. Sometimes we forget these things. So we'll talk about that too. But there's a particular theme that I think runs through a lot of these news stories and a lot of our reactions to those news stories, which which is an important theme and uh, something we need to explore, even though it's an uncomfortable thing to explore from time to time. As always, you are invited to, to be part of the conversation. You can SMS at any time on 34519. You could always WhatsApp 0618951019. You could tweet at Chai FM. You could tweet me directly at Rabbi Shish. Join Rabbi Ari Shishler for some fresh thinking every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. 101.9 High FM, 101.9 megahertz of power. So there you go, everybody. I mean, just just literally as uh, as the show got started, somebody sent me this thing where people are complaining about how it is that we have to pay now more tax because uh, people misappropriated funds, which I suppose is something that we could all talk about, not going to be what we talk about today. I think that there's something which is a theme throughout all of these stories, and you can really pick any news story you want at any particular time, and you would find a similar theme. Truth be told that that's on the macro level. The same kind of thing would apply on the micro level in our own lives. And the theme that I'm talking about, and I'd love to hear your input on, well, maybe let's come from a different angle. I'll ask it to you as a question. Let's start like that and see if anybody takes the bait. So as a question, 
What would you say is in society today, what would you say is one of the biggest reasons that things don't change? Although I suppose some people will say uh, that things do change. But just generally speaking, in society and life and politics, in your own personal world, what would be the main reason that things don't change? So here we are, we moan. That we're good at. We're good at moaning and talking about the fact that such things should not happen and there shouldn't be, uh, there shouldn't be uh, corruption and there shouldn't be misappropriation of funds and there shouldn't be tax increases. I'd be actually, it's not a topic for another conversation, but I'd be very interested to explore the Torah view on placing taxes on food items, by the way, just uh, as an interesting aside. Maybe we can reserve that for another time. But what's one of the big issues, big reasons? Why would you say it is that things tend to stay the same? Because they do. As much as we moan and as much as we complain, again, whether it's about things happening in our communities, whether it is about things happening nationally, whether it's about things happening internationally, or whether it's just about our own stuff. You look in the mirror, and there you are, X amount of years down the line from when you last did a proper introspection. You say, well, nothing changes. Nothing changes. Little things change. And uh, we did touch on this a little bit uh, in a previous conversation. We were speaking about people who believe that nothing can change. But uh, now I want to explore from a different perspective why. Why is it? What is the impediment? What's the, what's the challenge? What's the roadblock? What, what is it that, that causes things not to change? Why is it that we seem to find ourselves complaining chronically about similar, if not the exact same things? And by the way, what's interesting about it is that we find the same kinds of complaints happen in many places. So we often believe we're the ones with the trouble and we're the ones who believe that the government is misspending money and it's not right that we should have to pay taxes and the way that the taxation system works is not fair etc and you go somewhere else in the world and you find that the same kind of conversation is happening around a shabbos table just to make you feel at home or alternatively people complain i mean this this business of the uh it is this business of the shootings in in the states these campus shootings whether they be at schools or in universities i mean it's a shocking it's an absolutely shocking thing but the reality is it's much, much more common than what we get to see in the media. It has to be a high-profile case before it's reported in the media. I believe, I don't know if I have the statistic right, but I believe that, I mean, it's only February, that this is by no means the first, and I think we're already into double-digit numbers of school shootings in the United States. Now, that's a shocking thing. So why is it not changing? I mean, you remember that Columbine massacre. It was a horrible story. It was not as severe as this last shooting. Uh, Fewer Deaths, I believe uh, there were only, well, only, I mean, it's a terrible thing to say, but I believe there were 15, I think it was 15 deaths at Columbine, and here it was 17, so it's obviously a, a more high profile. I don't know what the injury count was on both sides, but Columbine was already a long time ago. Right, That was in the 90s. And ever since then, we've been complaining about all these things. The Virginia Tech shooting, I remember very vividly because at uh, at that point, ironically, I was actually in the middle of a conversation, an online conversation with a Jewish student at Virginia Tech at the time that the shooting was happening. So it was probably the closest that I, I could say I've ever been to, to any uh, uh, campus shooting in the United States. But it, it's still there. It doesn't seem to go away. As with a host of other things, we complain about, who knows? I, I mean, getting here to the studio today, I had to get my, get around 
road resurfacing that's happening on both. And I think some people are jumping for joy over that, as we should be, because it's been this chaos, this unfinished, unleveled piece of road for so long. So so what took so long to change? Why does it take so long to fill potholes? Why does it take so long to, fi- to fix traffic lights that are not working? Why does it take so long to change thinking, education systems, businesses, etc.? What are the what what are the roadblocks? What stops? And again, like I say, this it's all going to come back to ourselves. What's the big thing that stops us from making change? We promise ourselves a million times in our lives: going to do this better, going to be more patient, be be more present, be more mindful, be more healthy, etc. And then, and then it just uh, somehow fizzles out. Doesn't seem to be lasting or it just seems to repeat old patterns almost as if we're stuck in some kind of an orbit and that just recurs again and again and again so what's the roadblock what is it that gets in the way of us making progress and i think there are all kinds of suggestions that people could come up with that love to hear yours on three four five one nine if you're going to sms us or whatsapp oh six one eight nine five one oh one nine or of course you can Always, as uh, we like to encourage, you can always tweet at Chaifim. You can tweet at Rabbi Shish. My question is, what would you say is the big impediment? If there is one big impediment, maybe there are a whole bunch of things that, that get in the way that stop us from making progress. And the reason I'm bringing this up at this particular time is not just because of stuff that's going on in the news, but also because we're coming up for Purim. We're coming up for one of the greatest changes that had to happen. And, of course, it had to happen because there was a catalyst. We were in really dire circumstances. Here was the Jewish nation. Everybody was under threat. In fact, historically, ever since the exodus from Egypt, this was the only time in Jewish history where the entire nation was under threat simultaneously and it was lethal threat so it's a really big deal and of course if people at that time had not been able to make change well then nothing would have happened the story would have ended in a terribly different way and i suppose we wouldn't be here to tell the tale so so change is really critical at at certain points and it's often i suppose in our lives it's important to have change on a regular basis People who grow, people who move, people who achieve are people who are willing to, to change on an ongoing basis. So what, what gets in the way? What is it? We all know, we read, we experience, we, we learn, we, we download, we have all this access to insight into why change is valuable and important. Somehow we get kind of stuck a little bit in the mud. And it uh, doesn't seem that the change actually happens. Why? What's the big impediment? What's happening? Is it a matter of uh, insecurity? Is it a matter of fear of failure? Is it some kind of a paralysis? Is it some kind of uh, distraction? Maybe we're too busy with other things. We don't see necessarily the wood from the trees. What is it? What gets in the way? What's the real big thing? And considering that the Torah and that Judaism really wants us to make change and to grow and to develop and to completely break the mold of who we are, to become something more spectacular and to leave the short-term vision of what the world has to offer us and i don't mean to leave the world but to leave that short-term vision and instead to have this greater vision of something beyond the here and now so in order to do all those things you need some kind of fundamental change there's going to be a shift in thinking there's going to be a shift in behavior what what is the catalyst what makes it happen what are we lacking if we don't actually 
make change. So I'm curious to hear what it is that you think about that. If you've got a view, you can share it with us by SMS on 34519. You can share it by WhatsApp on 0618951019. Or you can get onto the social media thing and tweet at Chai FM or at Rabbi Shish. Join Rabbi Ari Shishler for some fresh thinking every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. 101.9 High FM, 101.9 megahertz of power. Well, not exactly on the topic, but uh, great point anyway. Uh, Graham here on Twitter says, big question about Purim. Why is it that Jews are so good at the difficult festivals and not as involved in the easy, fun ones? (laughs) So there you go. There you go. That's an interesting question. And maybe that speaks a little bit to our conversation over here today. You know, what's interesting about the whole thing of Jewish observance and the festivals and the portion of the week is that they recur on a regular basis, the festivals on an annual basis, the portion of the week on an annual basis. But it's not just rehashing stuff that happened long ago. It's giving us an opportunity. It's a window into ourselves. Every one of those stories is a window into our own life experience and what we should be doing, how we could be doing how we could make a success of ourselves. So we're coming up to Purim, right? Everybody knows that. This time next week, we'll be celebrating Purim. You have kids running around in fancy dress. If you're in the Glen Hazel neighborhood, it's always a lot of fun. People doing fun stuff just in the way that they go about their business. There'll be Megillah readings. There'll be big parties. And, of course, with that, all the controversy around drinking, which we actually spoke about last year before Purim. So it's great. It's good fun. Sometimes you could just pause for a second and say, now, so, so what's the message? What, what's this year's message? And there's so much that we could learn out of the story. So what's this year's message? What are we gonna, what's my take home from this year's message? And I want to look at it from that perspective of um, making change because there was a really important change that had to be made. So let's just do a bit of background on the story, particularly if there's anybody listening who's not familiar with the uh, Purim story. So here's your absolute summary of the story. There's a king. Most powerful man in the world at that time, king of the Persian Empire. Anybody who's familiar with history will know that the Persian Empire was the most vast empire that ever existed. So to be the king of the Persian Empire effectively meant that you were the most powerful person in the world and you controlled the whole of the developed world at that time. So there's this king. And without getting into all the detail, he lands up with a right-hand man, advisor slash prime minister by the name of Haman. Haman's a rogue. He's a bad guy. There's nothing good about the man. He's just rotten right through to the core. But he's got charisma. He knows how to push the right buttons. He knows how to play. He's a political animal. And very, very quickly rises from being a nobody in the cabinet to being the top man in the land. In fact, in a sense, almost you could say more powerful than the king himself because he's got the king's ear and he knows how to sway him in a particular direction. So that's about as powerful as you get. Now, pause for a second before we continue with the story, bearing in mind that this guy, this Haman, is a rogue, he's a rotten guy, but what's relevant to us is he's a violent anti-Semite. What do you think the average Jewish table talk conversation must have been at that particular time in history? In other words, here you are, you're a Jewish person living in a place where there's nowhere that you could escape to. There's nowhere that's going to accept you as a refugee because everywhere is controlled by the same government, by the same uh, people. And the guy who is swaying the direction of the entire empire hates your guts and wants to kill you. And, And of course, that emerges in the course of time in a number of different ways. What, what do you think people thought? They, they must have felt absolutely helpless, had to have felt helpless. 
There's, there's nowhere to go. There's nothing to do. It's not a democratic society. You can't vote the man out. You don't belong to a portion of the society that has the clout, the, whether that be physical power, financial power, political power, to be able to make any kind of change. That's it. This is the guide. Take it or leave it. Like it or not. That's your man. The, the best you can come up with is, is with some kind of self-preservation plan because there's nothing to do. There's no escape. Can you only imagine how helpless those people must have felt and of course we know how the story develops from there because it turns out that actually they're not as helpless as they think they are because there's this woman called esther jewish woman she lands up as the queen now i haven't said it in exact chronological order so there's a rise on both sides you've got esther who comes from no aristocracy that would be recognized by the Persian Empire and the next thing you know she's the queen and around about the same time you've got Haman rising meteorically from being nothing to being the most powerful man in the land. The only trick is that Esther in order to preserve her position and her life has to keep her identity and her religion absolutely secret. So you've got somebody who's in a position that perhaps if the need arises maybe she could intervene but at this point in the story, she can't really divulge who she is because that's just going to destroy everything. I mean, Achashverosh, the king, has no interest in being married to a Jewish woman, at least at that point in the story. He's, he's pretty much a rabid anti-Semite himself. So there we are. We've got this uh, perfect storm developing where although you have somewhere hidden within the palace, you've got a mole, you've got a, a Trojan in the palace – Bottom line is that as far as everybody else can see, things are dire and it's, it's not going to be great. Now, there's one more character in the story who's a really important character, and that's the spiritual leader of the Jewish people at the time, who was a sage and prophet by the name of Mordechai, who is related to Esther. There's various views on exactly how they were related, but the bottom line is he was related to Esther, who's now the queen. He also happens to be a high-ranking political uh, official because of certain skills that he had that nobody else had and he also has one of the asset which is he stepped in at just the right time to prevent an assassination attempt against the king so somewhere buried in the tones of the kingdom is a record of the fact that he saved the king's life and really the king owes him one so that's the background of the story when it gets to its climax and you've got this haman this absolutely spiteful, hateful individual who wants nothing more than to destroy the entire Jewish nation, ideally all on one day. And he gets to the point where the king says, fine, you've got it. He gives his stamp of approval. And it's it's a green. It's a green light. They, they can go. They've got a year to prepare this thing. and It's going to be the biggest pogrom ever in history. And uh, there'll be no Jews left at the end of it. So when all of that happens, Mordechai, who has... A, he's got a Trojan in the palace. He's got Esther in the palace. Obviously goes to see her. And this is a critical part of the story. He goes to Esther and he says, listen, there's, there's only one person really who has any pull at this stage and that's you. You're in the palace. You've got to go and you've got to confront the king and you've got to spill the beans that you're Jewish and you've got to tell the king that you are just as under threat. His own wife is just as under threat by Haman as anybody else and you've got to sway him. You've got to get him to protect us or ideally to get rid of Haman, which lands up being the end of the story. But that's not what we're going to focus on right now. So here's the moment where there's an opportunity for change. So let's let's investigate that. Let's explore that. There's an opportunity for change. And it's mega change because it's the difference between genocide 
and survival. It's the difference between, as we use the expression in the Megillah, it's the difference between who's the underdog and who has the power. It's the difference between celebration in place of devastation. So there's a lot on the line here at that, at this particular point in time. This is where the change is going to happen. And we can use this as a template. We can use this as one of the examples within Jewish literature of how we should approach change. So there, let's, let's see. Where, where's the obstacle in that particular story? We'll examine that obstacle and hopefully that will give us then some insight into what the typical obstacle is that comes up in our own lives when there's an opportunity for change and how then do you respond to it what's the antidote because it's all very well to identify the problem and the sages tell us that that's halfway to the solution but what's the antidote so that's what we're going to do we're going to identify what the problem is and we're going to see what it is that we can do about it it's just gone 2:30. if you've just tuned in you're on chai fm it's fresh thinking with rabbi shishla and we're getting geared up for Purim, which is a fun festival exactly one week from today. But I'm asking the question, now starting to link it to the Purim story, what is the big impediment to all change that happens, whether it be personal change, communal change, national change, international change? What is it that blocks change from happening? I'd love to hear your input, and particularly if you can pull something out of the Purim story and apply it to this particular topic, that would be wonderful. You can tweet at Chai FM or at Rabbi Shish. If you prefer WhatsApp, which we do, you can WhatsApp 618 and if you prefer the good old-fashioned SMS, then 34519 is the way to share your opinion on the subject. So I'm telling the story about Purim and observing a specific part of the story, which is where you can see, here it is. Here's the blockage for change. You, you've got this moment. You've got this opportunity. There's a terrible threat hanging over the lives of every single Jew in the Persian kingdom, which is every living Jew at that time in history. There is a mole in the royal palace. That's Esther, the queen. He, the king, doesn't know that she's Jewish, so he doesn't know, and neither does Haman for that matter. Haman the villain does not know that there is potentially somebody to undermine his whole plan, his diabolical plan. He doesn't realize that there's somebody at, uh, very close to the king who could un- unravel the whole thing. So here Mordechai, the spiritual leader, goes to Esther, the queen who is hiding her Jewish identity, and says, right, this is the time. Uh, this, this, you've got to go. You've got to go speak to the king, and you've got to tell him that it's now or never. He's got to recognize what he's done. He has to recognize that Haman is not his friend, is actually a horrible person, terrible person, and he's got to neutralize the plot. And Esther turns to Mordechai and she says, but, but do you know the protocol? Do you understand how this thing works? I'm married to a madman. The Talmud identifies that he was, that Achashverosh, the king, he was a completely fickle, unpredictable, bipolar kind of a personality. You never knew what you were going to get. This is the guy who very easily popped off his wife, his first wife, because she didn't conform to a completely ridiculous request that he had. So Esther says to Mordechai, listen, you have to understand that there's a protocol over here. And if I go in unannounced to the king, it's going to be off with your head. So what's, what is the roadblock? Here is an opportunity for amazing change. Here is an opportunity for Esther to become a heroine. Here's an opportunity to save lives, millions of lives. And she says, whoa, hang on a second. Do you know what's going to happen over there? He might kill me. 
Now, each of us has in our lives, we have moments exactly like that, where maybe it's not as dramatic as if I take action, I'll be killed. But it is dramatic because if I say something, what are people going to think? Why should I be the person to rock the boat? Let somebody else initiate and then I'll get involved. I don't want to expose myself. There are things to lose over here. Maybe they'll come after me. There are a million and one reasons that come up in a person's mind as to why they should not be an activist. And so what we do is we shrink back into inaction. And that's almost what happened here at this point in the Purim story. You almost have Essa retreat into inaction, and for good reason. Because does she have the right to risk her life? It's a broad question in Judaism. You're not allowed to put your life, take your life in your own hands. Just as there's a prohibition against murder, so there's a prohibition against suicide. You're not allowed to be reckless. It's not your life. It's not your body. You weren't, uh, you didn't select it. You didn't, certainly didn't make it. God gave it to you. So you've got a tremendous responsibility in terms of preserving it. So Esther's got a really good point. She says, am I supposed to be doing this? Am I supposed to expose myself in this way? And it's easy. It's easy at that point to take the view that we call in Talmudic terminology, Shev Ve'altase, sit back and don't do anything. Play it safe. I remember somebody once saying, you know, there's that old question, what's better, a clock that is fast or a clock that is stopped? And the classical answer that people always give is, well, the clock that is stopped is correct twice a day. And I remember somebody once commenting when I was in Yeshiva, one of the uh, teachers, one, a very insightful person, he says that a clock that is stopped is not a clock. So a person who takes the course of inaction, well, then you're not really living as a human. We're supposed to sometimes. We overreact. Sometimes we underreact. But the most important thing is to act. And so Mordechai turns to Esther and he says, you know, you have to consider that it's likely that the only reason you became queen was only for this particular event. That's it. You're going to throw away a whole lot of sacrifice because it was a sacrifice. Let's be honest. She was married to a madman. She had married out of the faith. She was uh, living trapped inside the palace with all these horrible protocols that she had to follow. And there was nothing nice about it. And he says, well, maybe the whole reason that all of this happened was just to give you this one opportunity here. And that is to save your people. So if you don't do it. If you don't do it, everything everything is not worth it. So he kind of spurs her into action. And it's really interesting because Esther goes and she does something which is really, really dangerous. It's a terribly risky thing for her to do. And she uh, she goes and confronts the, the king. And, of course, we know how it all works. At the end, he listens to her. Initially, it's just a bit of a trap. She sets up a private dinner with Haman, and then shortly after that, she manages to neutralize the threat. Haman himself actually lands up being the one who's killed instead of the Jewish people, and it's a fantastic festival that we celebrate until today. What what happened over there? What What's the catalyst? What's the lesson over there? Uh, we've got a WhatsApp from Tony that says, effort, effort, sorry, and lack thereof inhibits change. And that's simple Torah wisdom, not mine. So, yeah, effort is the cause of change. Lack of effort is what inhibits change. And my question is, why is it that people tend not to put in so much effort? That's my question. What is the blockage to effort? Why do people opt for a path of inaction? So, Every story in Judaism you can unpack layer upon layer and you can find lesson upon lesson. The villain in the Purim story is Haman. We all know that. 
Anybody who went to a decent Jewish day school knows Haman. You know that the little triangular cookies that we eat on Purim are called Hamantashen. We know that he's the bad guy. We know that when they read his name in the Megillah on Purim, everybody's going to make a racket. But what's interesting is to know who Haman is, what he represents. You know, every enemy in the Jew in the history of the Jewish people has represented a particular spiritual defect. So it's all very well to celebrate the fact that we overcame that enemy. You actually have to become introspective and say, well, have I personally overcome that spiritual defect? So Haman represents a very important and possibly the core spiritual defect that people have to grapple with. Now, in order to understand that, you've got to know a little bit of his lineage. Haman is a descendant of the arch enemies of the Jewish people, one nation that had the chutzpah to stand up when everybody else was literally shivering in their boots and say, ah, what's everybody so excited about? So the Jews did a few miracles, 10 plagues, yeah, splitting the sea there, big deal, so what? And that's where Haman comes from. He comes from this nation, it's called Amalek. And Amalek is the absolute enemy of the Jewish nation. That means to say that whatever that spiritual weakness is that Amalek represents, that is for us the worst of the spiritual weaknesses, the worst of the spiritual challenges. So we've got to get our head around that. Now, this Purim story, which is again a fight against an Amalekite, meaning somebody comes from the descendant of Amalek, comes from that lineage, in this particular case happens to be Haman, it's still about the same kind of battle. Now, we know that Purim is a time of tremendous joy. So that in itself might be a clue because that implies that the enemy is the kill joy. That's the worst thing. In Judaism, losing your mojo, losing your joy. We're told, and uh, a number of people point this out, that what happened with the Amalek attack, remember, Amalek is the nation that Haman belongs to, is that the Jewish nation was a fledgling nation, had just come out of Egypt in the most miraculous fashion. Every nation in the developed world at that point in time was gobsmacked. Nothing nothing like this had ever happened before. Nobody had seen anything like it. And so nobody had the guts to even touch a hair on the head of a Jew at that particular point in time until Amalek came along. And Amalek says, oh, come on, please, do me a favor. What are you getting so worked up about? Why do you think it's such a big deal? Listen, I guarantee you the stories are overrated. They're exaggerated. It was not as miraculous as you think. It was a couple of coincidences that happened to come together at the right time. And don't get so concerned about the Jews. You know what? I'll even show you. We'll attack. And that's what they did. And uh, they landed up being defeated. But that's not the point. The point is that Amalek represents that feeling of, "Ah, come on, it's not a big deal. So how does that apply in our lives? And why is that such an impediment to personal change? That's what we're going to talk about in just a moment. And if you've got something to share on that one, so 061-895-1019, send us a WhatsApp. Let's hear what it is that you've got to say. Join Rabbi Ari Shishler for some fresh thinking every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. 101.9 High FM, 101.9 megahertz of power. So what are these Amalekites, Haman, all the villains that we deal with at the Purim story? What, what do they all represent? And you'll see it expressed in that particular moment in the story, the pivotal moment in the story where... Esther, the queen, has the opportunity to turn everything around, to confront her husband, the king, tell him, expose Haman, who he thought is his great friend and confidant, for the villain that he is, and of course save the Jewish people. At that moment, you've got, you've got this 
as is to be expected. Anytime you're trying to overcome an enemy, whether it be external or internal, you have to anticipate that at the moment where everything is going to happen, that's exactly the moment where it kind of strikes you unexpected. So here she is. She's about to save the Jewish world. And, and, and just then there's like a little bit of internal haman that comes into it. So we're taught, and that's actually why at this time of the year we focus on this theme, both in the Purim story and as we'll do this Saturday at Shul when we read the one Torah reading of the whole year, which is mandatory. And it's all about the idea of what Amalek represents. So what does Amalek represent? I'll tell you in a second. Just want to share this uh, WhatsApp first from Daniela, which says, are we talking about lack of faith, maybe even hubris, that we can only rely on ourselves and we don't even think that Hashem is in charge? Now, that's a really, really insightful point. Um, unfortunately, not exactly the point that we're talking about now, but I, I'll just share it because you've mentioned it. That is how the Purim story begins. That's where things start to unravel. There's this moment right at the beginning of the Purim story where the king makes a huge feast and invites everybody to come. And the truth is the Jews should never have gone. But there was that moment where they thought, you know, the king's in charge rather than God's in charge. So if the king makes a feast, you've got to go. And that's where things start to unravel. And, and, and I'll leave it at that for now. But the, the issue, what Amalek represents is the greatest, greatest enemy of Judaism, and that is apathy. You know, I started off at the beginning saying, why is it that things don't change? Well, the primary reason that things don't change is because we are, by nature, apathetic. You might say that we're busy. That's true. You might say that we're distracted. That's also true. But it's a big problem. We are apathetic very, very easily. We say, Things are never going to change. The more things change, the more they stay the same. I'm never going to change. What's the difference? I mean, it's not as if they expect perfection or that I know a lot of other people who are in the same boat and they seem to be okay. So what's the big deal? Etc. 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 That's the enemy. That's the Amalek voice. Because think about this. The Jewish nation was in the stage, in this incredible transition stage in their development. Slaves, free people. There's very little in life that is as dramatic a change as that. From being incarcerated to being liberated. I mean, it's an incredible change. Comes along a mother and says, well, 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 what do you think? You think that anything's going to really change? Okay, so they won't be slaves anymore. They'll still have a slave mentality. You think that they become some kind of a super nation? Forget about it. They're just like they were before. Or, like you've got in that Esther moment, do you honestly think that I can save the people? Come on, who me? I mean, I know that I'm the queen and all that, but you don't understand what kind of a king we're dealing with over here. It's that defeatist attitude, that apathetic attitude, which basically says, please, nothing changes. You know how many times we've spoken about this? You know how many times we've complained about this? You know how many times I've brought this to the attention of the authorities? And, and we're all guilty of this because it applies in all of our lives in many ways. Why would I even report the fact that the street lights are out? No one's going to respond. No one's going to respond about the pothole. Nobody's going to respond about, uh, you know, whatever. You know, eventually it gets to the point of voter apathy and all these kinds of things where you honestly believe that you can't make a difference. We say it about ourselves. I'm not going to change. That, that ship has sailed already. You know, maybe I'll learn a little bit more. Maybe I'll make a little bit of a, an adjustment here or there, whatever. I'm not going to change fundamentally. There's not going to be any revolutions over here. Now, the theme of this month, which is the month of Adar, is Vanaha Foychu, that everything can change. Vanaha Foychu means literally turn things on their head. 
literally. It means it went from darkness to light, from threat to celebration, from devastation to exhilaration. I mean, it, it's just everything turning around. For Haman is the top guy, falls to the bottom. The Jews are nothing, so they rise to the top. I mean, like everything turns around. And we come back to this every single year to remind ourselves and to try drill into our heads that the greatest obstacle that we have to all change is not external. It's not the size of the challenge. It's the internal apathy. We just uh, we get to a point where we're just kind of cold on the inside and we're, uh, we're not exactly motivated. One of the great reasons that we become apathetic is because we don't feed ourselves with the right type of motivation. You know, the old cliche, what's the difference between ignorance and apathy? I don't know and I don't care. And the truth of the matter is that a lot of the time we don't care because we don't know. A lot of the time the reason we're apathetic is because we're uninformed, because we don't have enough richness of insight or or freshness of insight. You know, you can't rely on something that you learned 20 years ago and expect that it's going to inspire you today. It's got to be alive. It's got to be ongoing as the statement of our sages that every single day you have to experience the Torah as if it's a new. And it's all very well that we pop online and we watch a video here and we download a, a, a shiur there. It's all very nice. But the truth is we've got to actually engage. We've got to engage our minds. We've got to stretch our minds. We've got to exercise our minds. We've got, we've got to see what the wisdom of Judaism has to offer us rather than to just shrug our shoulders and say, ah, well, nothing's going to change. We actually spoke about this a couple of weeks ago, that it's a fundamental Jewish principle that everything can change and probably should change. It's a fundamental principle of ours that God recreates the world at every moment, which means that you have the opportunity for your own recreation at every single moment. It's a fundamental belief of Judaism that we have a soul within us and that we're not locked just into the physical reality. We've got resources that we can pull on, which are beyond time and space, beyond the here and now, beyond the limitations of the environment that we're living in. It's a fundamental belief in Judaism that we trace and follow the cycles of the moon, which is constantly in a state of flux and monthly has the opportunity to renew itself. It's one of our most compelling festivals of the whole year when we come to Purim because Purim is that message that nothing has to remain the way that it is. Everything has the opportunity for total shift. And and so that's what, that's the enemy that we've got to fight. That's the, the great obstacle that we've got to try and get ourselves past is this obstacle of apathy, this, this acceptance. There's certain things in life that you are supposed to accept and there's certain things in life that you should never accept. And things in life that are unhealthy or things in life that stymie our growth and development, those are the things that we should never, ever, ever accept, ever. That's the greatness of being human. In fact, there's that famous prophecy where the Torah tells us that the difference between an angel and a human is that an angel can't change so angels are wonderful and beautiful and spiritual and connected and have understanding and love and whatever else in, in their relationship with god which is all very nice but they have no opportunity for movement and for change and we do so it life would be fantastic if everybody just got on with it so there's got to be something to balance our incredible opportunities for growth and that's the great ball and chain of apathy of just thinking Maybe tomorrow, maybe never. I don't know. 
Can anybody change? So Purim, which is this time of incredible joy, joy comes from the ability to be able to shift. Joy comes from the fact, from the knowledge that you know that you're not trapped in your circumstances. Joy comes from an insight into the fact that every one of us has tremendous potential and needs to believe in ourselves and the God-given abilities that we have. And, of course, Hashem's blessing to succeed, that we can turn anything around and we dare not just sink into apathy. That's one of the main themes of this time of year, something that we really need to think about on a regular basis. I'm sure you got some thoughts on that one, so be free to share them. 34519 if you'd like to send an SMS. Join Rabbi Ari Shishler for some fresh thinking every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. 101.9 High FM, 101.9 megahertz of power. So we'll wrap it up with that, that uh, the theme of this time of the year, starting from this Shabbos where we read the story of the attack of Amalek, going through to Purim next Thursday when we talk about the attack of Haman, both of them carrying the same theme, which is try and kill the joy, the motivation, the optimism, the belief in change with apathy, the biggest enemy of the Jewish people is apathy. I did say right at the beginning that we'd run through some of the practical things for Purim next week. I know that we do this every year and we should really know how to do it. But the fact of the matter is that we forget that's how it is. We get a little bit confused. Is it this way or is it that way? So just to run through very briefly with you because uh, this time next week, I don't believe I'll be here on air. I'll probably be running around doing one of the many, many things that you're supposed to do on Purim. But there are four main ones. So if you've got a pen and paper handy or if you can type this into your phone, there are four main things that you need to do between next Wednesday night and Thursday. The four main mitzvahs of Purim and they go like this. You need to hear the Megillah. That means not a download. It means actually hearing a human being read from a parchment scroll. It's most likely going to happen in shul, although there are Megillah readings typically all around town in various places. And to do the mitzvah, you need to hear the Megillah twice. First on Wednesday night, sometime after 7, and then on Thursday, anytime during the day before, call it 6.15. So that's really important. You hear the Megillah, and and you've got to hear it twice. Second thing to do on Purim is the very famous Mishloch Manot. That's a present to a minimum of two friends. So you go along and you give, I'm sorry, to a minimum of one friend. Two friends doesn't hurt. You can give it to many friends. And the idea is that you take food, two different kinds of food, ready to eat. You give it to your friend. Ideally, they should give to you as well. And if you want to do it higher grade, you don't give it by hand. You send it with a representative because the expression that's used in the Megillah is Mishloach, which means to send. Then a very important, and the Chev are really on top of the game with this one, a very important part of the Purim experience is to give gifts to the poor. That should be to a minimum of two recipients. And the thinking is that you should actually spend more on that than you do on the food that you give to your friends. And the one that often gets overlooked is that it's a mitzvah to have a se'uda, which means that sometime during the course of Thursday, most people tend to do it in the late afternoon, you're supposed to sit down to a formal meal. That means that you have bread, you wash, you don't have two chalas, that's, re- that's reserved for a proper yomtiv or for Shabbos, but you do have bread, you sit down, you wash, and of course everybody knows that it's traditional to have a lechaim. You don't have to get yourself completely paralytic. Certainly, people underage should not be drinking. The idea is to get yourself into a state where you are beyond the distinctions between blessing the good guys and cursing the bad guys. You're beyond the distinction of, I love Purim because we won. And instead, you are at a state of focused dedication on God that goes beyond 
any of the rules or benefits that you might get. So that's really what it is that we need to be doing over Purim. The overarching theme of the day, and for that matter of this entire month, is joy. In fact, the Talmud says, Misha Nichnas Adar, from the minute that Adar arrives, Marbim Besimcha, every day you have to increase in your joy. That's not necessarily so easy for everybody to do, but if it's expected of us, it probably means that we could do it. We just got to get over the apathy. So I want to wish you a fantastic Shabbos and a spectacular Purim next week. And please, God, we'll catch you on the airways, not next week, but the week after.